Good morning. I wonder, is it okay if I share some personal news with you? Um, I'm, I got engaged this week, and I proposed to a woman. Thank you. Thank you. I proposed to a woman. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was praying for someone who, who had cataracts. So when I... <laughs> so she doesn't see real well, but she thinks I'm, I'm a real hunk of burning love. <laughs> and her name is Wendy. And I trust that in time you'll, you'll get to know her and welcome her. So thank you for sharing my joy. And thank you, Amanda, for reading the text. This is an interesting text, and I've titled today's message A Path Forward because when, when do we reach a place in life when we don't need a path forward? I, I find myself praying that virtually every day. Lord, I, I, I feel confused. Uh, I, I need to see a path forward. There are so many challenges in life. And so today, as we consider this text, I'm going to do my best to help us identify these several things, some vital questions that this text presents and, and a promise that the text identifies, and then a different way of thinking and some tools, or we could call them weapons, that God gives us, and then our response to this text. We, I think, always need to think about how we're going to respond to a text Let's look at some vital questions. These won't be the only questions that I bring up as we look at this text, but these are the ones I want us to focus on right now. Jesus asked a question. He said, who are people saying I am? And having read the text, you know some of their answers. They, they thought that perhaps Jesus was one of the Old Testament uh, prophets come, come alive. Maybe Jeremiah, maybe, maybe Elijah. And then I think it's important for us to ask, who do people generally say Jesus is today? In your conversations with people, I bet you meet people who, who don't trust Jesus as their Savior, some people who haven't experienced him in the particular way that you have. And so... They might think of him as a great moral teacher like Gandhi. They might think of him as a prophet. Uh, the, the Muslims think of Jesus as a prophet, a great prophet, but they don't acknowledge him as their savior or as God incarnate. And so Jesus asks every one of us this question that he asked Peter. But who do you say that I am? And you know how Peter answered the question. And we'll get to that in just a moment, but I want to ask you, who do you say that he is? How do you answer that question? Because that's the most important question you'll ever be invited to consider. Who do you say Jesus is? What was Peter's answer? And I suggest to you that Peter's answer, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, wasn't reflective he didn't have to pause and think about it. It was reflexive. It just came tumbling right out of him because internally he knew who Jesus was. He said, well, it was like, well, of course, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus 
Jesus explained to Peter how he knew that, how he came to understand that. And the answer was, this was revealed to you by my Father. And you're blessed that it was revealed to you. And I want to say to you that if you know Jesus the way Peter knew Jesus, if you know that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, you're really privileged. You're really privileged because God revealed this to you. You know what? I want to pause. I'm feeling, I'm sensing a little bit of interference in my spirit. I just want to pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to bring your influence to bear. I would like you to make whatever adjustment you want to make in me so that I can hear you better and, and deliver this message faithfully and help each of us to receive it. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, I drive away every demonic interference, every influence from darkness, and I say, be gone. You don't, don't get to interrupt or interfere with anything that goes on here this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. Would you agree with that? Amen. Amen. So how do you and I know, if we know, that Jesus is who he says he is? How do we know that? We know it because the Father reveals it, and, and that's the only way to know it. It's called revelation knowledge. You can read your whole life, you can study your whole life, but until God reveals to you who Jesus Christ is, you can't possibly experientially know and say with personal conviction, he's the Christ, he's the son of the living God. But when he does reveal it to you, when your eyes are finally open, oh my goodness, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Yeah. It's the only way we can know. Let's look at the promise in verse 18. Jesus says, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, the rock of what Jesus is about to say, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, some translations say Sheol, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's a promise. And before we get to the promise, that is, unpacking the promise, there's some clarifying questions. I want to ask you to consider, first, what is the church? And this is the first reference to the church in the New Testament. What is the church? By definition, the word itself, ecclesia, means ones who are called out. They are called out from the world. They are called out for the Lord. They are set aside for the Lord. It's talking about people. It's never talking about a building. The word is used in the New Testament in a broad sense and in a narrow sense. In the broad sense, it's referring to the worldwide or what we might call the universal church of God that is made up of people in every nation, among every tribe, among every ethnicity. In the narrow sense, it's talking about individual congregations. Paul writes his letters to the people of the churches of Galatia and then to the churches of Ephesus. There are congregations that that fall under this heading. They too are the church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says this about the church. The church is God's household or his family and it's a pillar in support of the, church, of the truth. Is life church a part of the church? Then what's the promise? The promise is Jesus is gonna build his church. Can we count on Jesus to build this church? Yeah, yeah, we can. We can. Well, what are the gates of Hades? What are those gates? Jesus was calling to mind for them the picture of an ancient walled city. Ancient walled cities had gates, and these gates 
provided access, a place where people could come into the city and where they could exit the city. But the gates were also known as the location of the courts where judgments were rendered. So, what's the promise? Let's look at verse 18 again. You are Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That translation I just read from, and most other translations, in my opinion, are actually poor translations of the last statement of that verse. The best translation that I could find that represents what the actual original language says is this. It's the Aramaic a Bible in plain English. That's what it's called. The last, the last phrase in verse 18 should be translated this way. The gates of Sheol, or the gates of Hades, will not withstand the church. They will not withstand the church. This leads us to a different kind of thinking. And we need to ask the question, what, what was Jesus trying to convey? He was trying to convey the idea that the church is actually an offensive force which, against which, I should say, the defenses of hell are helpless. Consider that. The church is an offensive force against which the defenses of hell are helpless. The church is not to assume a besieged mentality. Some years ago, I heard my son Luke say this, and it was a, in, a, an insightful comment, which I'm going to quote here. He said, we're to move from seeing ourselves as besieged defenders to relentless attackers. And in order to do that, we've got to use the tools or the weapons that he gave us. And the weapons are binding and loosing. Now, I want to read to you a particular translation that is known for its accuracy when it comes to translating Greek tenses, and it's called the Williams Translation. And it says, Whatever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth must be already permitted in heaven. The idea is not that heaven simply responds to our whims, but that we get in touch with heaven and we bind or loose in agreement with heaven. Does that make sense to you? And it's very consistent with the life and the ministry of Jesus because when Jesus ministered, he said, I only say what the Father instructs me to say, and I only do what I see the Father doing. So Jesus' life and his ministry, his teaching, everything about him was a reflection of being in harmony with the mind and the will of his Father. And we need to learn to minister in the same way. So when it comes to binding and loosing, and I'll do my best to unpack what that means in a moment, when it comes to those things, we need to understand that we only do those things in response to heaven's influence. So we bind what heaven does not endorse. Can you think of anything that heaven does not endorse? Well, we learn what heaven does not endorse or approve of by looking at what the Scripture says. Is God for life? Yes. Is God for health? Yes. Is God for freedom? 
Yes. So that means God is opposed to premature death, however it might come. Could we say that God is opposed to sickness? Do we see in Jesus the embodiment of God's will in nature? Yes, we do, because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's safe to say, we've said it here before, we're going to keep saying it, there is no unchristlike feature to God. Jesus didn't make people sick, he made them well. In fact, Peter said, you know, he said to his audience, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, how God the Father anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing people who were oppressed by who? The devil. The people that were sick were oppressed by the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, for this purpose, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus healed, when he delivered, he was destroying the works of the evil one. So what is God against? He's against sickness. He's against bondage. He's against addiction. And we don't shame people who experience addiction. We don't judge people who experience addiction. We try to liberate them. And with God's help, we can. And we don't ever want to shame anybody when they're experiencing sickness or, or less than God's ideal, or when people are depressed or struggle with a mental illness like bipolar disorder or any number of other disorders. There are so many. We want to be the liberators, not the shamers. So God doesn't come to judge those things. He doesn't shame us when we experience them, but he wants us to, to be free from them. And binding is about coming into agreement with heaven and, and negating the things that heaven doesn't endorse. Functionally speaking, binding is a verbal declaration of cancellation. That's what it is. It's a verbal declaration of cancellation. We loose what heaven sanctions, those things I talked about. Heaven's for life. It's for freedom. It's for joy. When you read in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, things the Spirit produces. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. When you read about those things that the Spirit produces in the life of a believer, like love, unconditional love, and peace and joy and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness, all that stuff, you're reading about things that God approves of. He wants us to experience. So functionally speaking, we loose what heaven sanctions. And loosing is a verbal declaration of activation. And I want to do my best to unpack what this could look like in your personal life. You know, some of you are called to a ministry of intercessory prayer, which means that you have more than the usual commitment to prayer. And that doesn't make you better than anybody. And it doesn't place you in some kind of elite category. But it does mean that you are usually interested, very interested in prayer and learning about how to pray more effectively. And do you know that by nature we don't know how to pray? The book of Romans in the 8th in the chapter says we don't know how to pray. Romans 8.26, we don't know how to pray as we ought. But there's good news. The Holy Spirit helps us with this problem. He helps us with this. He prays for us. It says with groanings too deep for words, he prays according to the will of God on behalf of the saints. And then if you go forward, you fast forward to verse 34, you see that Jesus is doing the same thing. He's also praying for us. 
So the Spirit is interceding, and Jesus is interceding. And if you think prayer doesn't make a difference, consider this thought. Well, God thinks it makes a difference because God the Holy Spirit and God the Son both pray. They pray. And so we begin learning to be effective in prayer by realizing we don't know how to pray as we ought. And James, James 5 and 16, tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous person really makes a difference. The effective prayer. Well, what does that imply? It's possible then, it implies then, that it's possible to pray ineffectively. And if you want to pray effectively, you've got to learn the mind of God. And the mind of God is revealed in the Word of God. In 1 John 5, it says this is, is, well, let me just look, look it up for you, all right? This is the confidence we have in approaching God. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that whatever we ask, according to his will, we know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the request which we have asked of him. That's the confidence we have when we're approaching God that whatever we ask according to his will, we know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests which which we have asked of him. So we've got to find out what is the mind of God? What does God feel about my current set of circumstances? Do you need work? Do you need a job? Well, the Bible tells us God loves to supply. He supplies all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah. The Bible also says that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that everything you need, all the practical things you need, and he's talking about stuff that, you know, you're going to wear and eat, all that practical stuff, he's going to supply it for you. And you might say, well, what does seeking first the kingdom look like? It, It looks like seeking first the king. Seek first the king, and you'll be seeking first his kingdom. And the king is Jesus. So we dig into the word and we find out that God wants me to experience joy because the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. He wants me to experience all of those things. And when I'm not experiencing them, it's a fair thing to say, then then how do I experience them? How might I experience them? And if we read Galatians, for example, one of the things we'll learn is that because these are the things the Spirit produces, that we need to learn to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we're here to help you with that, by the way. This church can help you with that. See, we need to be informed by the Word. And the Word tells us we can walk in freedom. So when we're not walking in freedom... When we're, when we're experiencing bondage to anything, any kind of addiction at all. It might be an addiction to resentment or hatred or, or porn or some kind of eating disorder. It could be any number of things. We need to know, you know, this isn't God's will for me. I'm not experiencing God's will. And if this is going to change, then I need to find out how I can experience that freedom that Jesus provides for me. Because he said, I came to set you free. And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed, which means really, truly free, so that you don't have to white-knuckle it through life. Because remember this again and again and again. Tell yourself this. It's not about trying harder. It's about receiving more. 
It's always about receiving more. And so a great prayer is, Lord, how do I place myself in a position to receive more? How do I receive that freedom that the Bible promises? And I'm here to tell you, if you do struggle with an addiction of any kind, I'm, I'm not suggesting to you that if you experience freedom that you'll never be tempted again. As long as we live here in this world, we're gonna experience temptation. But the good news is you'll have the power to resist. And some of us haven't had that power. Sometimes we know we're powerless, absolutely powerless. I remember being pretty sure I was addicted to food. I mean, it's one thing to enjoy food because we all need food, but I remember it would be 11 o'clock at night back in the days when I could stay up past 9 p.m. It'd be 11 o'clock at night and I'd be watching something on TV and I'd be laying on the floor with a pillow under my head and I'd think, Man, a bowl of cereal sounds really good. It's the only time I would eat cereal is about 11 o'clock at night. And of course, I wouldn't get a little bowl. I'd get one of those big stainless steel bowls. And of course, it had to be whole milk. Had to have whole milk. Maybe some heavy cream in there too. And then, and then I got into the habit of eating a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream every night. Every night. And then I had a torrid love affair with little Debbie and her Swiss rolls. I mean, I, I just, I'm sorry, I have to admit, I just got to let you, you know, know that I just went down every time I saw little Debbie, Debbie, she'd be flirting with me, and i go, okay, you know, okay, I guess, I guess I just don't have the self-will to say no. And so, I remember I was trying to get away from little Debbies and haagen and all this stuff, and I was doing okay, and I was uh, at, a, at a family vacation, and one of my big sisters was there. And it was my birthday, and she said, well, Kevin, I got you a box of Little Debbie Swiss rolls. See, the word was out. Everybody knew I was a sucker for Little Debbie. And she said, so, you know, you, you can just enjoy them. I said, okay. I figured they'd last me a few days, but I sat down and ate the whole box. And then a lady from the church I was serving said, hey, Mac, you know, I bought you, I bought you a year's supply of Little Debbies. And I said, I don't know if I should thank you for that, you know, I'm... I'm uh, not doing so well with resisting the temptation, she said, but it's a year's supply. And I mowed through those babies within a month. I mean, I had them in my freezer, but they came out regularly. And I couldn't get free. Honestly, guys, I have, I've had some self-discipline when I was an athlete. I had a lot of self-discipline. I didn't have self-discipline as a student, but I had it as an athlete. And I had discipline in some other areas. But here was a time in my life when I didn't have any kind of self-discipline when it came to eating. And I was worried about the effects, the long-term effects this was going to have on my health. Because I believe God wants us to be a good steward of our health. And it's not about a perfect shape or size or weight. I mean, I know rail-thin people who aren't, who aren't very healthy and people who are a little hefty, who are pretty, pretty healthy. And so it's not about those things. It's about, God, what does stewardship of my health look like for me? Does this make sense? And I was asking that question, but I had to come to the realization that I was actually powerless, powerless to resist little Debbie Swiss roll, to, to resist haagen and cereal and stuff like that. And I had to admit that, and I came to God just as I was, and I said, God, in this area, I'm a slave. I'm a slave and I need your help. I really need your help. And it's not like there was a lack of information. There's all kinds of books I could read to tell me what to do, to give me strategies, but when you lack 
the ability, the freedom to say no to temptation, all that information isn't going to help you. It'll just make you feel like a loser. But guess what? The Holy Spirit answered my prayer, and he began to help me. And now it's a daily thing. I'll tell you what, uh, I could make a fool of myself again with little Debbie. She still looks pretty hot to me, you know? But I'm just telling you that we need to understand God wants us to be free. He wants us to be financially free. Do you know that God cares about your finances? God is not anti-wealth. He is anti-greed. And there's a big difference. There's, there's so many people that are mentioned in the Bible who are lovers of God, who are filthy rich, incredibly rich. They were lovers of God. You can be a lover of God and be wealthy. You know, God would love for every person here to be financially independent. Completely financially independent. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. You might even ask God about that because God is no respecter of persons, which means he does not discriminate. He would like to help everyone. The Bible says he's impartial. And so when you read your Bible and you see that God wants to bless the work of your hands and he wants to supply every need you have so that you have an abundance and when you consider that when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, he didn't make enough so that everybody got a sardine on a Ritz cracker. It says they all ate, the thousands ate, and they were full. Can't you just picture them right now undoing their belt buckle and saying, oh my goodness, I don't think I can eat another, another bite. And when he provided the manna, it was so much that everybody could go out and get everything that they needed. And when he provided the quail, it was more than they could ever ingest. That's who he is. He's a God of abundance. And so he wants you to know that I want you to have plenty. He doesn't want you to be greedy. If you get greedy, that'll get in your way. And that'll interfere with your ability to receive what God has for you. God wants you to have victory. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have peace. He does not want you to be depressed. And if you're depressed, as I said a little while ago, I don't want you to feel any shame about that. It is what it is. We are not here to condemn you. We are here to show you the way out of that. And sometimes that includes therapy. It includes counseling. Sometimes it includes medication too. But we want you to find the way out. That is not your destiny. Your, your history doesn't get to define your destiny. Looking back, whatever troubles you've experienced, that doesn't get to say what you're going to be tomorrow. You and I can have a new beginning today. We really can. And so when we bind and loose, we identify the things that God is against. He's against depression. He's against hatred. He's against resentment. He's against self-righteousness. He's against legalism. Just listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and you'll know that. And he's against this idea that, that there are people that are going to go to hell. He doesn't want that. He's willing that none perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we need, to, we need to bind that stuff. We need to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say no. I say no to that stuff because I want you to begin to think this way. Meaning, 
You know, according to sociologists, each of us on this North American continent has a, fear, a sphere of influence of about 250 people. And, that, and that's in some part due to the influence of social media. And so that includes your, your immediate family and your extended family, your friends, your neighbors, you know, coworkers and so forth, church, church friends and social media friends, about 250 people that you could influence in some way. And what if you and I each accepted at least some responsibility for what goes down in our individual circles of influence? And when we see stuff that's happening there, like in our own families, there's a lot of addiction in my family. There's a lot of, of violence in my family. Um, there's a lot of uh, marital infidelity in, in my family. Lots, lots, lots. But you know, God says he set us free from generational curses. In, in, in 1 Peter, it says he's ransomed us from the feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers. Just because this stuff happened in our family history doesn't mean that it has to keep happening. There's families where, like the Kennedys, how, I mean, how many men have died prematurely in that family? How many men in that family have been addicted to sex? And, and all kinds of corruption. And there's some good Kennedys, of course. But there's patterns in various families, and God, God wants to change all of that. He wants to change it, and he provides for, for us so that we can actually see our children have a better life than our ancestors had. But we need to learn how to say no to these unholy influences that are happening in our circles of influence. And not only that, we need to, to know how to loose the things that God says he wants to release into our circles of influence. He wants to release hope. You know, hope is miraculous. If, if, you, if you've lost hope, the game is pretty much over. But God loves to restore hope. And so I, I believe you and I, when we're standing in the gap for our friends, whether you have a ministry of intercession or not, each of us can pray. Each of us can pray. And each of us can make a difference. And I want to tell you something. You don't need any, as far as I know, I might be wrong about this, but as far as I know, you don't need any special gift to pray. All you have to do is to be able to share your concerns with God. And if you look at your family and you see some of the same stuff I see in my family, I say no to addiction. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I say no to mental illness. Lots of mental illness in my family. Some of you would say, yeah, I know some of you guys, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, that's true. But it's a beautiful thing to say, I'm saying no to that. I'm saying no to that. I've been saying no to severe chronic pain in my back for a long time and an addiction I saw in one of my children in particular, a particular child. And somebody said, well, Kevin, maybe your prayers aren't working because, you know, you're, at the time my back was still really bad and my son was up to his neck in, in trouble. And, uh, and in fact, he still is, but I said, well, I actually do, th I do feel some, some hope and some confidence that stuff is happening because the truth is, I think that if I wasn't praying and if, and if others weren't praying for my back, I might not be walking right now. And I think my son might be dead right now. 
He's had numerous drug overdoses and suicide attempts, and, and he might not be alive. How much worse would things be if we weren't praying? Maybe we don't have the victory yet that we hope for, but how much worse would things be if you weren't praying? So brothers and sisters, please pray. And please learn that prayer is not just about asking God for good stuff, that's good, but prayer is also about taking a position where you're not just saying, you know, I don't want the, the forces of hell to overcome me. Prayer is sometimes kicking butt and taking names. Prayer is going on the offensive and saying, I'm taking back what the enemy took from me. I'm, I'm taking back what we have lost. The years, the years that we have lost in our family because, because we have children who suffer, who are in bondage to all kinds of terrible, addictive things. The years. And yet God says, I'll restore the years that the canker worm has eaten. I'll restore those years. He's a God of restoration. And remember, God can do in five minutes of favor. This isn't original with me, but it's true. God can do in five minutes of favor what you can't do in a lifetime of labor. And so we need to come to God and say, Lord, have mercy. Show me how to let you use me to fight the good fight and to take back what the enemy has taken from me and my family and others in my circle of influence. Is this making sense? So what is our response to this text gonna be? Maybe we'll just walk away and say, well, it's some helpful information, but messages that don't transform us are just information. I don't, I don't, I don't ever wanna be guilty of that, brothers and sisters. I, I, I hope that when you hear the word of the Lord, you're moved, you're motivated, you're, you're interested in saying, Lord, I want to apply this. Show me how to apply this. Show me how to do this. How do I walk in this? Because remember, it doesn't matter if you have no reputation or education or any special skill. If you say, God, I want your help, you know what he's doing? He's going to show up. God shows up for hungry, desperate people. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how, you know, if you have a powerful role or you don't have a powerful role. God meets the desperate, the hungry. He, you know, people who cry out to him, he meets them. You can have as good a relationship with God as anybody on the planet. You know, God loves to give his favor. Who does he give his favor to? To seekers, seekers, people who say, Lord, save me, help me, meet me, touch me, transform me, change me, save me, deliver me. Lord, may I not settle for less than everything you want me to have in this life. You know, heaven's going to be great, but in the meantime, we're living in the nasty now and now. Let's kick butt and take names. Yeah, let's go for it. You know, the Bible says the violent take the kingdom by force. The violent. Now, that's talking about people. That's talking about people who are so spiritually aggressive, they're not going to settle for less than what Jesus died to provide for them. Let's be spiritually aggressive. Let's, this isn't about hype. What if we ask God to infuse us with holy zeal? Jesus, it's said of Jesus' zeal for his house consumed Jesus. What if it consumed us? What if it spoiled us so that we didn't even want to flirt with sin? 
Wow. Wow. Well, maybe whether you're here today as an as a absolutely new person or you've been a regular, you're watching online, you know, the truth is every one of us needs to receive the gospel every day. And what is the gospel? It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. Not obedience, not tithing, not coming to church, not reading your Bible. All those things can be good. Pharisees do them too, though. Right? The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. That's salvation. Jesus plus nothing. And when you get Jesus, you get everything. You get everything. And man, I'll tell you, that's when life becomes something that's worth living. Because even when you face hardship, and you will, everybody faces it, that's not a negative confession. Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation. And you know what? He could have added, he could have said it this way, and no big whoop, because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So come hell or high water, no matter what happens, if Jesus is with you and you're with Jesus, you're going to have breakthrough. You are. So if you're here today and you want Jesus plus nothing, just open your hands and say with me, Jesus, come into my heart again. You're still standing at that door. You're still knocking. You're still inviting me. Help me to hear you. Help me to open my heart to you again today and every day. Help me to receive your salvation afresh. Drive the forces of darkness out. And Lord, we come into agreement with you and we say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we bind division in this church. We, we bind death in this church. We, we bind addiction in this church. We bind hate in this church. We bind every kind of discrimination in this church. We bind resentment and self-righteousness and sickness and disease and mental health issues and all of that stuff. We say no in the name of the Lord Jesus. We break that in the name of the Lord Jesus. We lose righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We lose victory in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask for a church we can't explain without you. We don't want a church that's a result of us trying harder. We want a church that's a result of us receiving more. And that's what we ask for in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus.